welcome to the Canadian Nutrition Society podcast, Nutrition Conversations, a podcast dedicated to exploring the latest research in nutrition and health in Canada. In each episode, we invite expert guests to share their insight and knowledge on a wide range of topics from dietary patterns to sports nutrition, food insecurity, and food sustainability. Whether you're looking to improve your own health and wellness or simply stay up to date on the latest developments in the field of nutrition, we hope you'll join us on this journey to better understand the role food plays in our lives. Please note that the views expressed by speakers in CNS podcast are those of the speaker and not necessarily. Sitting in the host chair in this episode is the program manager of the Canadian Malnutrition Task Force, Rupinder Dhaliwal, We'll be talking to Professor Heather Keller on Episode 8 of Nutrition Conversations about addressing malnutrition stronger together. Hello, Nutrition Conversations listeners. Malnutrition in Canada is an overlooked health issue that can have a huge impact on individuals and the healthcare system. The Canadian Malnutrition Task Force, a group of clinicians, researchers, and decision makers, has been advancing nutrition care research and education to address the prevention, detection, and treatment of malnutrition across many health sectors. I'm delighted to be talking to Professor Heather Keller, who is the Schlegel Research Chair in Nutrition and Aging and a professor at the University of Waterloo and a founding member of the Canadian Malnutrition Task Force, also known as CMTF. Heather is an internationally recognized expert in geriatric nutrition, assessment, and treatment, and her interests include translating research into practice and advocating for improvements in nutrition care across multiple healthcare settings. Professor Keller has led several national research and knowledge translation and implementation projects. She has published more than 250 peer-reviewed articles and translates much of this evidence into practice with tools and resources. Heather, I have had the pleasure of working with you over the last several years and welcome you to Episode 8 of Nutrition Conversations, Addressing Malnutrition Stronger Together. Thanks, Rupinder. It's great to be here. Heather, your research um, has focused on nutrition risk, malnutrition identification and treatment, as and has gained a lot of attention in Canada and globally. In fact, you've received several awards recognizing your research contributions in the area of malnutrition. And in Canada and across the world, when people think about malnutrition, they think about Heather Keller. <laughs> Can you tell us about your research Specifically, why did you decide to focus on malnutrition? Well, that's a great question. And so this is back to my first clinical position. I started uh, back in the 90s um, working as a clinical dietitian in a chronic care and rehabilitation facility. 
And they actually hired me because I had a master's and they wanted to do research. And specifically, they knew that one of the key challenges that they were having with their longer stay patients was around food intake. And so I branched out in doing research in malnutrition. I'd had a really great um, basis at the University of Guelph around assessment and identification of malnutrition. So I put that those skills to great use and did a series of studies actually in that facility around malnutrition, what was causing it, um, how we could treat it and prevent it. And that sort of launched my interest into realizing this was a pretty big issue. Um, it was happening, I worked as well at the same time with, as doing this research in the rehabilitation um, unit. And so people were coming in from outside in the community with a broken hip, for example, or some other um, some other uh, crisis that had launched them into acute care and then they came to us for rehabilitation. But these people were malnourished. And so it was either happening in the hospital after their, their a fall or whatever happened to them, or it was happening before they met the hospital. And of course, these are older adults that I was dealing with. So it really um, developed my interest in older adult research, of course, in that area as well. But it's that ex clinical experience of, of seeing it happen in a long stay hospital as well as seeing patients in rehabilitation coming from the community who are malnourished that made me realize this is a big issue and we're not really addressing it back in the 90s there was really no consideration of how we should be addressing this yeah thank you um why why do you think our listeners or canadians should really even care about malnutrition yeah that's a great question as well i think most people don't realize what malnutrition is and so they think, you know, it means you're thin, it means you're not eating at all, and they don't recognize how disease can be part of it, first off. And so they don't recognize that when then someone is going into hospital, having a surgery, and then not eating well afterwards, they're likely going to be malnourished, that's going to affect their recovery. So um, I run into the situation, actually, with other colleagues here at the university saying, why is nutrition important after you grow up? I mean, they, they, they get it, that little kids and people that are growing need good nutrition to grow to their potential. But they forget that our bodies are constantly renewing and constantly need nutrition to keep it functioning the way it should. And we don't always eat the way we should, right, to, to function in the way that our bodies are meant to. And so long term, we can get micronutrient problems. But more importantly, when thinking about um, adults and as they age, perhaps not getting enough protein, they need more protein to keep their bodies uh, functioning the way they want them to. So people forget the importance, I think, of nutrition to the overall function of their body. And specifically with older adults, I think, oh, I'm, I'm not as busy as I used to be. Or I'm not as active as I used to be. I don't need to eat as much. When automatically when you eat less, you tend to eat less micronutrients, which means you can become micronutrient malnourished and often less protein, a high quality protein. So they, they're, they're putting themselves in an issue of a deficit, if you will, that then can lead to significant challenges, whether it be recovery from a wound or um, helping to keep their function the way they want to, like being able to uh, bend over and touch their toes or pick up groceries, all those sorts of things mean our body has to work the way it's supposed to, has to have muscle, has to have that nutrition to do all the functions of the body that we wish it to do. So like you said, that um, healthcare professionals and the public are surprised to hear that malnutrition is a concern mm -hmm. in a country like Canada. And you alluded to the fact that, you know, it's seniors are vulnerable. Um, you talked a little bit about hospital, um, but there are other health sectors out in the community Absolutely. that you also mentioned. And so can you elaborate on 
how malnutrition might look like um, in a hospital setting and out in the community as mm -hmm. well. And then yeah. in, perhaps in long-term care as well. Sure. So uh, children, for example, going into acute care, we know that individuals that are young that are going into acute care for um, uh, that are, are a pediatric center, they tend to have significant diseases if they're going into hospital, right, for a period of time. And about half of those will not be eating well when they're in the hospital. So a good portion are coming in undernourished or malnourished, about one in, one in four, I think, is the stat that we have. And then once they're in hospital, because they're not feeling well, they're not eating. And so, again, the recovery is going to be potentially delayed. Even if they get out of hospital, um, you know, getting back home, they may not be eating very well when someone has a disease state. And so you see that as well with the adult population in hospital. People go to hospital because they're not well. Um, they're, they're either having a surgery, maybe it's elective surgery, but most people go into hospital because they're not well. When they're not well, they don't eat, right? And that could be Something that happened before they came in the hospital, let's take again a person who's had um, <clears throat> cancer, for example, and they've been having chemotherapy, and they end up in hospital because they're, they're having um, perhaps some challenges with that chemotherapy and not doing well. They're likely not um, um, being able to manage that uh, chemotherapy, potentially because they're not eating as well as they should be. They're not managing their diet in a way that can actually support the chemotherapy workflow in their body. There's many side effects of the medications we take for uh, chemotherapy, but other medications too. So when someone has any kind of disease state, they're being primed to be at risk for malnutrition, either the drugs or the surgery or the, um, the effects of the treatment might affect what they're eating. And then secondly, being in that hospital environment, they're not feeling well. Uh, coupled with some of the processes that we have in hospitals that don't allow people to get the food when they want to eat it and the way they want to eat it, like there might be barriers to food intake. Um, they might be left to what we call NPO for a period of time after surgery. That impacts their, their nutrition, obviously. And so we're trying to um, think about ways to overcome those barriers for sure. So that's the acute care setting. People are unwell very likely to have then challenges due to disease, treatment, or processes in the acute care that impact their food intake, whether they're young children or adults. <clears throat> Excuse me. In the community, um, those that we see most vulnerable, again, are growing children. Uh, maybe they're in a situation where um, uh, parenting isn't really um, clear about how to feed this young child. Uh, they might be limiting some foods for the individual, might be um, because of fad diets or things like that, that really can affect the food intake of the individual. That happens throughout life, right? And so we see people in the community who are on fad diets who might get micronutrient malnourished, um, not just young children. And then the other vulnerable group outside of young children who are growing and need nutrition, of course, for that growth, are older adults. And it tends to happen in older adults, malnutrition or nutrition risk, because they're starting to have changes in life that affect their capacity to access and consume food. Think, for example, losing your teeth. <clears throat> Excuse me again. Um, losing your license to, to get uh, groceries. All of those now are barriers to your consuming food in a way that's going to nourish your body. Then we think about long-term care. Long-term care, you've got people living in this scenario that um, are there because they often are functionally dependent on others. They also may have dementia. I think about 60% of people living in long-term care in Canada have some level of cognitive impairment. 
We know that being functionally dependent on others, say in a wheelchair, for example, you maybe you've had a stroke, now you can't necessarily use both hands to eat your food. That's going to affect access to food again. Um, thinking about dementia only, if they um, maybe they can walk and function that way, but they have challenges staying at the table long enough to eat a full meal, or they might have swallowing challenges and chewing difficulties. Again, all these barriers start to happen as we age to food intake, and why we see persons living in long-term care or even in retirement home being at nutrition risk or malnourished. Yeah, thank you, Heather. Um, as I look at my, you know, my own family members and, you know, if I, if my child was uh, in that vulnerable population, if somebody said to me that, oh, your child has malnutrition, I think I would take that quite personally. And so I'm, I'm just wondering if the word malnutrition puts people off, um, whether, you know, it's a malnutrition risk in a child, or it could be my mother, mm, <laughs> elderly mother, yeah. or somebody in long-term care. So any, any thoughts about the, the word malnutrition itself? Absolutely. I'm, some people are very offended by that terminology. And I can remember doing a study, and we were talking about nutrition risk even, not malnutrition risk in the community. And when we um, sent people their results, because that was part of the study, to see if we gave them the results, would they then, when given some information, change their behavior? And some people were in total denial and said, no, I'm eating just fine and dandy. I'm not don't have nutrition risk. So certainly the word malnutrition too, people have a lot of negative connotations about what this is, especially if they've lived through World War II, um, if they were in, from Europe, for example, during World War II, where there was, there was absolute starvation in some scenarios, right? And people were um, having to eat a variety of things that were not even food, quite frankly, to feel full. So the, there are those negative connotations around malnutrition, what that means. And as you said, if you're a parent and someone says your child is malnourished, you feel like you are to blame perhaps because you're the keeper of that food, right? And the one that's providing food for that individual. So there's definitely those emotional ties to food that we can't forget about and nurturance, right? That we can't forget about when we think about the word malnutrition. And so sometimes I would rather use the word nutrition problems with people because that's fixable, right? And uh, it doesn't lay blame to anyone. Certainly the malnutrition task force has used the word malnutrition purposefully because that is the recognized term internationally around what we're talking about. And there is a need to raise awareness that there is this thing out there, this level of malnutrition that's happening in acute care and all the other settings we just talked about, but it's fixable, right? It's something we can do something about. Um, and so we're, it's a tension, I guess, I have as a researcher. Do I use the word nutrition risk with people in the community when I'm when I'm involved with them, knowing that there are these emotional connotations around food, but also the need to educate people that this is malnutrition, what it looks like, and that it is fixable, it is treatable, and it can be reversed readily, right? When we think about, uh, especially in acute care setting, giving someone food again, two, three, four days, they start to replete and your body starts to recover better. So it's absolutely repletable. And that's the important message I think we need to get across as well as that it's it's a dangerous situation, right? Yeah. Yeah, well said. Um, it seems like for the healthcare professionals, uh, we perhaps need to, to focus, it's okay to focus on, you know, use the word malnutrition, but when it comes to conveying it to the public and family members and patients themselves, perhaps we need to be a little bit more sensitive. 
Yeah, Would you exactly. Agree? Yeah. Exactly. And I think using the healthcare professional's wisdom and, and uh, knowledge and um, um, knowing that patient that they have in front of them, how they're going to react. That's very important language, I think, to know those things. Yeah, sure. Right. Um, you've been a leader for the Canadian Malnutrition Task Force for the last decade. Um, and thanks to you, CMTF is known to be the national voice for the prevention, detection and treatment of malnutrition across Canada. Um, I'd like to, to give you this opportunity to tell us a little bit about your research and, and key initiatives um, relate that you've uh, undertaken with CMTF um, that justifies this you know, statement when we call CMTF the national voice. So uh, well, I would well, like, I, yeah. Well, certainly Go just ahead. correct you one, one thing, Rapinder, <laughs> it's not me alone. It's a huge village of people and volunteers that are very committed to this issue. I've just had the honor of helping to lead them for part of that last decade. Um, so it's not just me for sure. There's a huge group of people behind us. But um, when it came to the research, we actually have done um, four or five studies now, I guess, uh, over the last decade that have really launched us forward to being that voice in Canada around malnutrition. So back in 20, 2009 or so, we met as a group, a small group of us met in Toronto. And we talked about that, you know, this issue of malnutrition we were seeing in acute care with adult patients specifically at that time. And, but it was, hadn't changed. And um, some of the members of our team, Chris Boy, for example, he was a he is a leader in malnutrition and, and nutrition care in Canada. And I can remember hearing him speak back in the 80s and he was talking about malnutrition and it was still there. Right. Here we are. 2009 it was still there and there really hadn't been huge advances around how to address it. So we thought rather than going in with an automatic um, treatment plan or preventative plan or something like that, we had to demonstrate to the Canadian healthcare community that this was happening here because people believe it when they see their own data, right? And, and so we thought, let's launch a really big study across the country, eight provinces, 18 hospitals. Each hospital had to recruit, uh, I think it was either between 40 or 60 patients, and they had to um, recruit these people from key units in the in the in the hospital that were medical units specifically and look for were they malnourished and why were they malnourished and what was happening to them in the hospital setting because this then gave us the fodder for saying here this is what it is the prevalence this is what it costs because these people are malnourished and staying in hospital and it, this cost that because we didn't find them to be malnourished and then third why are they malnourished and why do they stay that way so that, that study called the nutrition care and Canadian hospital studies was huge it really we published quite a few studies out of that or articles out of that um, and it really demonstrated the gap the need the prevalence as well as the ways we could address it, and then this cost of malnutrition. So that was the first big study. We then were um, tasked with, well, what do we do next? And uh, we thought as a group, you know, we can't stop here because we've now raised this awareness. We have this incredible privilege, but also responsibility for pointing out the problem, but now also trying to identify that solution. And so we got some funding to do a, um, 
a modified Delphi, which is a consensus-based process to identify uh, what should be happening, what is best practice. And there was certainly some literature to help us out with that, but we developed a draft, what we call pathway of care for acute care. And we, as a group, uh, brought together experts from across the country to say, could this pathway work in your hospital? How does it need to be modified? And we put that through a series of, of uh, consensus processes with the modified Delphi. And out came something called the Integrated Nutrition Pathway for Acute Care. Um, at the same time, we ran a couple of smaller studies to create some of the resources that would help use the impact in practice. For example, we knew that understanding food intake in hospitals is really important, but a very time-intensive task. And so could we figure out a tool or some sort of resource that could be used in the hospital to make it easier? And that was the My Meal Intake tool. It could be done by patients themselves or their family members as a way to track food intake for a team and then identify when someone's not doing well. So we had those sort of side studies as well at that time on this integrated nutrition pathway. We then had the opportunity to go for funding to see could we actually implement this pathway in five hospitals in Canada. And that was a risky scenario, as you can imagine. Uh, we got funding specifically because it was risky um, from the Canadian Frailty Network, um, who was at that time funding the, this sort of risky research. And um, they funded our implementation in five hospitals, which occurred over a two or three year span, I guess it was, and we showed we could do it and what it took to do it. And we didn't put a lot of um, boundaries, if you will, on the hospital units that were doing this. Um, we just said, you know, here's the pathway, you go about doing it, we'll support you as we can in terms of um, behavior change techniques and help you with some training, those sorts of things. And we mentored them through this process over an 18 month period. And we realized this is what it takes to then make change. We then uh, were fortunate enough to get uh, funding to, to supplement that to go for um, study again from CFN, Canadian Frailty Network, to see if we could multiply that effect in 10 hospitals, but scale it back, not as have as much research presence in there to show that hospitals could do this on their own without being funded extra to do it. Um, and we showed it was certainly feasible, slower for sure, but certainly feasible. And then uh, that led us to where we are now, the advancing malnutrition care strategy uh, that we're leading right now with CMTF. But we learned a lot along the way about how to change behavior, how to support teams, what was needed, um, and all of that has led into a variety of toolkits and resources that are currently available on the CMTF website. Ah, thank you, Heather. That's um, a really nice review of how your research, you've uh, identified the gap, the need, the prevalence, and then, you know, ended up getting consensus to create this great pathway. And then you, you didn't stop there. You actually went ahead and studied how to actually implement this in real life settings, in a hospital setting. And then you scaled it up and then you created tools. So what a, what a wonderful program. And that's very, very inspiring to hear you talk about that. Um, one of the things that you talked about is um, that you couldn't have done this on your own. And as you know, that the Canadian Malnutrition Task Force has an educational campaign, um, Canadian Malnutrition Awareness Week. Uh, this year is October 2nd to the 6th, and our theme is Stronger Together. Um, so can you um, sort of help the listeners or just understand how we could work stronger together to address this very 
uh, prevalent health issue malnutrition, which is a little complicated to address. Sure, absolutely. And, and so nutrition, one of the challenges with it, it is a team sport, but it's also the benefit of it. It's a team sport. And so you think about a hospital setting, for example, the number of people involved in food in the hospital, the people that make the food, the people that deliver the food to the unit or the ward, then the, the nursing staff who bring it into the patient bedside may assist that person with eating, monitor how much they're eating, the dietitian who's prescribing the diet, the dietitian is working with the physios, the OTs, etc. It is truly a team sport. And so this is why we're using the, the tagline, as you said, stronger together, because it takes that group of people to see um, how they can have input. So take, for example, um, in the Morteat study, I'll reference that since we've already talked a bit about it. We had the challenge of trying to do weekly weights. Um, that was part of the Integrated Nutrition Pathway for Acute Care was monitoring body weight of people. And one of our innovative hospitals that was involved decided to tag the physios in the hospital with that task. So rather than putting it on the nursing or dietitian or whomever to do the body weight, they realized that physios are walking people anyway in the hospital. Why not walk them to where the scale was, get their weight done, etc. And so this is how it can be truly team involvement and how we can be stronger together, thinking about all the things that team members do in that scenario of acute care hospital and how they can have input. Physician, for example, can um, reduce their use of NPO or uh, no food by mouth orders after surgery, recognizing that a person, when they're not eating post-surgery, can impact their recovery. Nurses can be at the bedside seeing when people are having barriers to food intake and addressing those themselves or talking to the dietitian or OT in the hospital or the speech language pathologist about why they're not eating. Are they having swallowing problems, chewing problems, etc.? Dietitian obviously involved in terms of prescribing diet, knowing best what's needed for the patient. Um, the dietary team members that bring that food up and make that food in the hospital, hugely important. So it really is stronger together. We think about the community setting. There is nowhere near enough dietitians to ever provide the nutrition care that's needed in the primary care setting, whether it be for pediatric, pediatrics or older adults or anyone in between. And so it truly has to be a team sport. We need to have the understanding from community partners, for example, people that go into the home that um, might be there for even housekeeping to see, oh, this person's not actually eaten anything in the last three days. And how can they then link that to someone who can do the next step to identify what they need to bring in the home. Do they need supports in the home to support their food intake um, or getting food into the home, for example. So community service providers are part of the team, absolutely. Then there is the primary care team itself. So often you will never see a dietitian in primary care, especially if you're outside of Ontario or Alberta, where we have more dietitians in that setting. But in other provinces, it's very rare to have a dietitian in primary care. So seeing that person specifically for when a person's not eating well is very challenging. And so this is where, again, the team is incredibly important to recognize when there is potential nutrition risk happening, persons not accessing food or consuming food, losing weight, poor appetite, all these risk indicators of malnutrition that are happening, we need to have that. And so we've created some tools actually for primary care around this exact uh, issue. Once they leave hospital, knowing that people need to be connected to their primary care to make sure they recover well, post-hospital mission, but also a pathway for people that are older adults, specifically in the community, and trying to meet their needs, recognizing how to screen for that nutrition risk, um, what sort of things can be put into place by any healthcare professional, not necessarily 
dietitian to start the treatment for that individual and thinking about how to link them up to community services to support that food access piece. So there's these tools again that are available that can make us stronger together across a team already available with CMTL. Um, and so those are just a couple examples of how we need to be stronger together as a team. Can you suggest where healthcare providers uh, working in various areas of healthcare could obtain these resources? And mm. are there any re resources for the public, family members, you know, I might be interested in, in looking at or the listeners? Right. Well, healthcare professionals, certainly Canadian Malnutrition Task Force has created videos. They've created um, uh, infographics. They've created tools for nutrition screening, for example, and then what to do post-identification of nutrition risk. So those tools for healthcare professionals are there. They're segregated in the CMTF website by sector of care. So long-term care, primary care, acute care, and pediatric specifically acute care. So those tools are there for healthcare professionals. I think for the, we've targeted, CMTF has primarily targeted healthcare professionals rather than the public. But what we do have for public facing things are some of our infographics around what is malnutrition, um, the importance of malnutrition, and some of our videos as well that raise awareness. So thinking about Canadian Malnutrition Awareness Week, which is coming up, which you just referenced, um, that we make infographics every year for, for that, uh, that campaign. And those are available on the website for people to use. So that and some videos are very, can be very public facing and raise awareness wherever people uh, are during that week. They can put them up as banners or put them up as posters and beyond after that week as well for the public. Before we conclude um, today's um, podcast, Heather, is there any um, words of advice that you would have for seniors and their family members or healthcare providers? I know you have sort of given nuggets of advice everywhere, um, but if I were to ask you, are there any, maybe a couple of words of advice from you? <laughs> Well, we could do a whole podcast, as you know, Rupinder. So older adults is my specialty, um, and, and I do a lot of work in older adults from dementia through to long-term care, including the acute care uh, work we've talked about with CMTF. And so I think when older adults are in the community specifically and their family caregivers, um, I think it's important to understand nutrition risk is subtle and you might not be realizing when it's happening. And so there's something uh, called the screen tool that I created, oh, more than 20 years ago now, actually that is self-administered to identify nutrition risk. And we have a website that actually has the tool there, uh, but also um, some very nice fact sheets for families to, to look at the nutrition risk. Um, and certainly we can reference that if you need that. But um, I think the key thing for family to realize is that nutrition risk is more likely to happen as we age. And so, so be on top of it. Someone, for example, um, no longer drives. That should be a signal for family to watch, to make sure they're getting enough food into the home. Or someone is having a hard time with arthritis and standing at the counter and complains of that. Then think about what are they eating? Are they eating enough? Um, and talk to them about that. And talk to them about the fact that they may not want some of these community services. They think they're invasive to their home or they don't want to go down that slippery slope of getting someone to provide care in their home. But recognize that some of those preventative things like meal programs, uh, food into your home, a meal provided for you, or going out to a congregate meal setting, 
are really helpful for keeping people at home for as long as possible. And so nutrition, like exercise, is vital as we age. And so um, if we think about that and think about a person not moving as well as they were before, perhaps having some transportation difficulties, appetite, not interested in eating, or you look in their fridge and they're not eating at all or very little, it's time to have that conversation and say, you know, mom or dad, um, I'm worried about what you're eating. And, you know, what you eat is really important to stay at home for as long as you can. It's going to affect every part of your body, give you the strength to stay at home as long as you want to. Let's talk about how you're eating and what are some of the challenges. Um, there are certainly some really good resources out there for family as well about uh, how to get meal programs and those sorts of things. And, and I think CMTF starts to start making some of those resources ourselves in the near future, I hope, for this group. Yeah. As a quick summary of what we've learned from you today, Heather, for our listeners, um, we heard that malnutrition is, is a common disease state. Um, you see it across hospitals, in acute care. Some of it is related to the disease itself, the treatment, the processes that are in place. We see it in a community setting. It can happen in adults. It can happen in growing children. Um, it can happen in long-term care as well due to, due to the dependence on others. Um, we heard that there's maybe a negative connotation um, with the use of malnutrition in some cases, because we invoke that emotional response, um, but it is treatable. It is still an important issue that we need to deal with. Um, thank you for sharing your research. Um, it was really nice to, to have that nice overview of everything that you've done. And we're really happy to, to see that there's lots of resources and tools out there. So thank you, Heather, for such a great conversation and for sharing your expertise with us on this podcast, Addressing Malnutrition Stronger Together. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Nutrition Conversations. We hope that you found today's discussion informative and inspiring. If you're interested in hearing more about the latest research in nutrition and health, be sure to check out our website at cns-scn.ca-podcast for upcoming episodes. You can find us on various platforms including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Simply search for the Nutrition Conversations podcast on your favorite app and you'll have access to all our episodes in one place. We release new episodes at the end of each month, so mark your calendars and stay tuned for upcoming episodes. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode.